Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Finding Our Way. This is our Southridge member podcast, helping everyone get the inside scoops on life in our church. And uh, about every six months, I get a chance to sit down kind of for more of a high-level kind of state of the union uh, with our beloved teaching pastor, Michael Kraus. So Mike is joining me today. Say hi to everyone, Michael. Hey, it's good to hear everybody. Well, you can. You, it's good for you to hear me. <laughs> it's always good for us to hear you. <laughs> I shouldn't uh, be so presumptuous. We haven't uh, we haven't hung out since January in this format. So, talk about just in general how things are going in your world these days. Oh my word! Right, January, which feels like four years ago. Yeah, seriously. Oh my word! It's I would say my world is a curious paradox of chaos and peace. On the on the one hand. Obviously, everything is chaotic, with, especially with Krista continuing to work. I'm at home with the kids uh, primarily, you know, most of the time. And uh, so with them being home from school and that, the, just the way the household descends into chaos when everybody's there and you get to pick who you want to fight with at any moment in time. Uh, and so you're, you know, I've constantly got the stripes and the whistle out to be refing the, their relationships and stuff people barging in on Zoom meetings, like all of working from home and the kids are at home and all of that chaos. And yet at the same time, uh, I am an introverted homebody. And so I have loved being at home. I've loved being in and around my kids. I've loved working in my backyard. I mean, doing my job. I hate yard work but I love doing my job, but doing it in the environment of my backyard. Um, I love the way that I've been allowed to experience a more introverted version of life. It's been, there's been a lot that I've enjoyed about it too. It's funny, as I've talked with different people, the, the, the working from home thing is so unique to everyone's circumstance and season oh, yeah. of life and whether they have kids and age of the kids and number of kids and degree to which they fight, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, there, there is an interesting dynamic where, yeah, in your case, on the one hand, working from home has been a blessing. And on the other hand, you're at home doing some work. I know yes. it's how some people have described it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, Tom, Tom Lowen keeps reminding our inspiration team, we're not working from home. We are at home during a global crisis uh, trying to get some work done on the side. And there's, there's a lot of truth to that. And that, that mental and emotional shift has actually been profoundly helpful to be able to live into that reality. Yeah, yeah. Give yourself permission. Hey, uh, I love getting people's take just on the, the, the formative moments of the pandemic hitting. So imagine, I know this feels like it's two years ago, but, uh, you know, remember back to those days just before March break, can you, can you remember back to when things were changing so fast and, and so much and how you were feeling? Oh, I mean, it's, it's almost hard to remember that far back in some ways, but in other ways, um, with Krista being a frontline healthcare worker, and in fact, as a respiratory therapist, her role is, is among the single most dangerous roles in the hospital in terms of exposure to COVID. And she herself has respiratory illness, and so she's vulnerable with her own health anyways. 
back in those early days. So my point in saying that is the pandemic occupies a huge amount of space in our emotional horizon all the time. Mm-hmm. You, and you, it had, has, you had your eye on this before any of us. But I would say because of Krista's role in the hospital, we were getting briefings. We were getting like high level, hospital level briefings in our home uh, before any of this really hit. And those early days, uh, the briefings were terrifying. I'm, I'm going to be absolutely honest that the, you know, the hospital had organized the phases of badness of the pandemic into stages. And they were saying, if this gets to stage six, we'll be admitting 40 COVID patients a day. You'll be intubating patients in the hallway in dangerous circumstances. You'll be withdrawing life support, probably, uh, you know, daily, multiple times a day, perhaps even on each other. If hospital workers get sick, um, you'll have, be having to say goodbye to staff members. Um, you will all emerge from this with PTSD from all of the life and death decisions that you've had to make and, and all the ways you've seen people die. A COVID death is a horrible death. Um, and we, we lived with a very real awareness of the potential severity of this moment, I think in ways that uh, others didn't. Um, we've had yeah, I remember, friends. I remember you saying there in one of the briefings early on that, you know, Chris had come home being told of the probability that 50% of those healthcare workers, respiratory therapists, and others that she works with will get infected. Yes. Like that was just an expectation setting framework for you guys to live with that, that I remember you and I've talked about this often privately, was just so distinct from the world that I was living in, knowing that we don't have front of the front of the front line healthcare workers in our family and yeah. therefore didn't have to process things like that. But that was when you talk about horrifying. Wow. Well, I, I would I consider myself uh, a realist in terms of my outlook on life, which is a euphemistic way to say I'm generally a pessimist um, in some regards. Like I, I, I'm okay. Like I can confront life. This is what it's going to be. I know things aren't always going to go well, and we'll figure out a way to deal with it. Um, I, I have not generally been prone to anxiety. Uh, and it was hard to ward off anxiety in those early days in our home. And in fact, um, I would say those early weeks were marked with just a persistent low-grade anxiety that we just had no clue what our future was holding. By the time you're having end-of-life conversations with your you know, 41-year-old wife, because who knows what's coming, that's just real sobering stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Can you talk a little bit about, for you, just the, the, the difference that faith was making? Uh, you know, just from what you could recall in your own yeah. processing of those early moments. I, the distinct impression I remember having in those early weeks, as, as much as we were grappling with, you know, real time, how very bad this could be for us personally and individually, um, I remember having this distinct moment where I realized that in the uncertainty, in the threat of pandemic, in the, in the 
life spinning, you know, out of our control, um, all of those realities that we were probably in my entire life, I had probably never been closer to living through similar circumstances to the people that we read about in the Bible, whose lives were uncertain, who were living with, you know, poverty, who were subject to plagues and famines and whose life was often felt out of control. And, and so uh, what I discovered all of a sudden was the words of scripture where people were crying out to God to be there, to be their help, their protector, their guide. Those words became so incredibly real hmm. Because they resonate so deeply all of a sudden with my experience in a way that they never had before, maybe in particular in the Psalms. But then those expressions of trust where the psalmist would say, but I trust in you, but God, I know that you are sovereign. I know that, um, that nothing is too hard for you, that, that they, could, they could, in the midst of the fear and uncertainty, lean into such a robust trust was inspiring to me. And I, I actually found myself processing this reality and saying, like, if they, their circumstances were even harder than ours in many, many ways, and if they could find a way to lean in with that confident trust, then certainly we can find a way to do that too. And I think that that biblical example of trust in the midst of fear and uncertainty became super important to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, it's great. The the I was talking to someone yesterday about the never miss the blessings of a crisis, mm-hmm. and uh, if if that can be one of them in our lives, and even particularly in your life, Mike, that that is faith forming to say, you know what, I identify with the characters and the writers of the scriptures better because the scriptures weren't written in 21st century Western affluence right. and, and metastability, right? They were so lived that's how a we lot often read more. Them. Yeah, we read them. We read them from this you know, pretty stable, <laughs> solid perspective. Yeah. And, yeah. and you're right. You actually entered into, it was almost like you, you, it, it, it's almost, you know, when people make those trips to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go visit Jerusalem or I'm going to go yeah. do a promised land tour. It's almost like you got one of those experiences at some level, which is pretty cool. Well, there's no question. And, and it, it all at some level has to do with a loss of the loss of privilege or the loss of security that we're so accustomed to in our lives, but that was so foreign to the people who were writing and living through the scripture era. Um, and so there's a sense in which being stripped of the things that we value the most, our security and our privilege, gave you a new insight into what faith really means. Yeah, 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 that's fantastic. Hey, want to talk about church a little bit. So, uh, you know, you've had now three, four months to kind of reflect on how things have kind of played out. Uh you know, from your seat, how have you seen our church respond to this? How are you feeling about all that? I have been, I mean, obviously, one of the strangest realities of this moment is that it's so hard to use the phrase the church and know what we mean because we don't have access to the community as a community. And it's, and at it, some level, it's hard to get a read on how. Uh, the community responds because we're so dispersed without having that reversal of being gathered 
uh, in each other's presence. But I have the thing that I have been impressed with, um, maybe it's more especially in the last month, it has become more obvious to me, is that the pandemic has had the opportunity and in some communities and places, it has produced such incredible polarization where it's almost, uh, you know, the pandemic's become a political issue in certain communities about what we think about it and how we respond and so on. But what I feel my experience in our community has been this incredible unity and solidarity uh, in response to the pandemic, um, in response to the seriousness of it, um, that in general, our community has been on board with the severity of this moment um, and not taken it lightly. The, and, and therefore, um, in compassion and empathy, the solidarity that we've experienced in people standing with each other, the, um, the, uh, the, the part of our website that says, you know, I have a need and I want to help. Yeah. The give help, need help page. That, that idea that our community was so aware of the potential for um, the pandemic to hit different people differently for it to marginalize some people who were not marginalized previously for it to further marginalize people who were already marginalized, that awareness um, that, you know, my own experience of the pandemic might not be typical of everybody's. So let's be aware of each other and let's be ready to step in and to fill that gap where it exists. All of those ways which we were for each other and with each other in our response, they've all been uh, and profoundly impressive to me um, because of what I think it says about the fabric of our community and, and what holds us together. Yeah, when they talk about crises, uh, not necessarily defining reality, but illuminating what already was reality, it definitely has illuminated the ways in which our community is galvanized around some common things. Oh, there's no question. And uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly haven't experienced a lot of polarization within our community. Although when you you know read in the media and whatever, that seems to be the impact of something like this. And that, that I, I would agree that's been super encouraging. Where would you say that, you know, in the last number of months when it comes to the church, you know, I, I love the way you shared personally about the way that, that, that God has worked in your life. Where have you seen God work the most significantly in our church community? Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's sort of a funny question or it's a it's funny to think through because you and I've talked about this for years about the the pastoral role in the community and um we've talked about the parable of the sower, right? That the on the one hand the sower's responsibility is to is to just be faithful to keep sowing the seed, just keep doing the thing you've been called to do and um and uh, in effect, you know, for the first, you know, for the soils in the parable, the response is actually not the sower's responsibility. The sower's just got to be faithful to sow. And uh, that's always been sort of my bias is to lean into, let's just be faithful to do the business that, we're, that we've been called to. And you rightly 
bring the perspective that in the in the last the good soil it says that it re, there was a return of 30 60 100 fold that you could actually see the impact of the ministry when it was taking place and and uh, and that that's an important part of it too that we're in the impact business and and uh, we want to see the results of what God is doing and in the in this season it's been so hard to get your hands around um, what, how do you measure, how do you even have tangible evidence of what God is doing when you're never together and you're, um, and you're, it's so much harder to be social with people and so on. But I think what I have seen is early on, uh, we had a friend, Krista and I, and we were in conversations and they said, at the end of the day, what I really need right now is I need my church to grab my hand and walk with me through this season and say, we're going to get there and here's here's what we're going to do so that we all make it through this. And I, I think that God has been doing that through our church. I've when I, when I sit in leadership team meetings and we talk about the ways each of the ministries is adapting to the present moment and the changes that are necessarily being made because of things we can't do anymore, but new needs that are emerging, and these are things that we must do now, and how can we adapt and change? I feel like um, we, we have been able to become a church of the pandemic in a way that, at least in the conversations that I'm having, uh, people are finding meaningful, that they are meaningfully encountering God together with our community as the result of our, how our community is walking through this. And it's been, it's been remarkable because you do a lot of ministry where you're wondering whether are we really meeting people's needs? Are we talking to people where they're at? Um, you know, what, what better ministry could we do? You're sort of, you're, there's a bit of throwing spaghetti against the wall and because people are in all sorts of different places and they're all sorts of different life circumstances. Of course, that's true always, even in this moment as well. But there's been this, I was talking about solidarity before. There is just a togetherness that we're all in this moment together and it's allowed us to lean into the moment and, and do ministry straight at what people are feeling right now. And I think that God is uh, God's meeting people where they're at because of it. Yeah, you talk about doing ministry straight at where, where people are at. You know, I've loved knowing that we're trying to foster a lifestyle of full devotion. That, that things that become laser focused around fostering that lifestyle. Mm. And, you know, we don't have programs really to do that through anymore, but the support for people to engage in a practice-based faith, the facilitation and brokering of no need among us mm -hmm. level relationships with one another, and the connecting of people directly for friendship makes a difference. Um, I mean, we've arguably been never more laser focused on fostering that lifestyle of full devotion than we have through the pandemic. It's been amazing. Absolutely. To your point, the impact of that is so hard to feel 
And, and those of us who are listening, you know, appreciate that this is so hard for us to feel because we're so not together with so many of us. Yeah. Most of the time, we don't have those natural rhythms of being around and especially on Sundays, seeing each other and, and kind of getting a vibe for how things are going that you kind of don't know on the impact side. We know on the intention and on the input side, but not on yeah. the impact side. And that, that kind of makes it a little bit more curious. So, Well, it's, it's kind of like both you and I have pre-recorded sermons and I, I don't know if people know, but you know, our Sunday sermons are, are outside of pandemic circumstances are pre-recorded in the auditorium, you know, on the stage in a dark room and it's you and one camera person in the room and that's it. Now in pandemic, we, we record our sermons in our living rooms and it's actually just you and a camera. And so you preach this sermon and you, you believe so much in what you're saying and the second you're done, there's literally no feedback. Yeah. Like you get no feedback. So there's no validation. There's no, yes, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And, and it's almost like, and it can be very disconcerting at first to preach a sermon and toss it out there and don't, and you just don't know for days whether it landed. And, uh, and it's like our whole church has become that, right? We do this ministry and we throw it out there and it's almost impossible to know whether it lands. Yeah, but you, but you just lean into that trust that God is building his church. So if we're hearing God's voice and we're following God's lead in the, in the ways that we're leading, then we just trust that our faithfulness is matched by God's faithfulness and that God is doing what God does. Yeah. Hey, we know you as one of the most insatiable learners, especially around our community. What would you say you or we as a leadership are learning through all this? You know, I've heard the phrase, you should never waste a crisis. Mm -hmm. So well, what is this teaching us about God, about the church, about life, whatever? What are we learning, would you say? Well, I would say a couple of things, um, and they're probably related. I would say in a moment like this, when everything about the usual practice of church is just stripped away because of physical distancing and, you know, everybody's at home and, and so on. All of the trappings or most of the trappings of the things that we think about when we think about church are gone. You have to take a step back and ask yourself, what's left? Like, what, what is it that endures in the, in the moment? And I would say that um, one of the things that, you know, I think is true about Southridge is that we have for a, a long time said that faith is a lifestyle, that churches, and not just participation in programs, that church is about living missionally and not just what I can receive or consume. I mean, we all receive, we all uh, hopefully benefit from the ministry that happens to our church, but it's not just that it's receiving so that I can give right. The, the that verse in Genesis, I'm going to bless you, but I'm blessing you so you can be a blessing. The idea that my life ought to be outputting mission and when all of the things or many of the things about church life that we quote unquote consume or the ways that we receive are either are either changed, stripped down or eliminated entirely, 
the question that you're left with is what what is left of my faith? What is there that I would identify as Christian faith in what remains? And I think we have it. The pandemic has clarified dramatically how faith is more of a lifestyle than it is a participation in a program. And I think uh, we have the best I can discern. There are a good number of people in our community who have begun to lean into that and, um, and flesh out the ways that that reality is true. Probably the other thing I would say uh, is that, and this pains me to say as an introvert, but um, that the church is not about the programs we participate in. In a, a different sense, you can say, the church is actually the community that surrounds me. That we're not, you know, individuals receiving individual inputs through our church participation so that we can individually go and be individually better selves. But there's actually something fundamental to being church that is about being connected with each other, that relationships are the bedrock of all of this. And even those of us who are introverts, who tend to think of ourselves as introvert, as individuals navigating our way through life, there is a, there is a longing that grows. This is actually, no, I, I long for other people. I long to feel that connectedness again. I recognize now the priority that with so much stripped away, it's actually the relationships that remain that are the things that matter. It's the, the neighborliness with which we live towards each other that is foundational to what makes the giving and receiving in community uh, the beautiful gift that it is. Mm. And I to, hope to, that endures. Yeah, to me, I was going to say that. That, that's probably the most obvious thing that I've learned in this whole pandemic, even outside of the church from a broader society, is how social and relational humans really are. Yeah. When you take that away, you know, we're starving for that. And yeah. I know that early on in the, in, the, in the pandemic, when it came to church, you know, there was a lot of sort of futurists or pundits that were saying, you know, this is where Sears wakes up and sees that the future is actually online. It's Amazon. And the church needs to wake up to that. And after about a month of everyone kind of trying and enjoying the novelty of online, whether it was Sunday morning experiences or Zoom meetings or whatever, mm -hmm. I, I think that society and I think the church actually has learned the exact opposite, yeah. that we are fiercely relational and there is no digitizing of that that can actually replace human to human contact. Oh, that's for real. Yeah. And and if if the primary working out of our salvation is not just a transformation of character, but a transformation of community, of the way we are a human community together, then um, what that means is that in the church or what the church ought to be and what we ought to be leaning towards is the church being the place where we're experiencing more love, more joy, more peace, more patience. And I think as we've, as we've been stripped of those things in some ways, our hearts long for those things and we crave for it. Yeah. Hey, uh, along those lines, 
We got a few minutes left. Give me, give me just a few preliminary thoughts on the whole conversation about reopening. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to start. I mean, my thinking in this starts where uh, our thinking as a family always starts when we talk about pandemic realities, and that's with the health care side of the conversation. Right now, in in communities where reopening has been an issue for you know a month now or so on, um, the spike in COVID cases that is now measurable. Uh, in, in places that are in crisis, they say it's it's due to prisons, long-term care, and churches meeting for worship that are driving the COVID numbers back up where they were in decline for so long. Um, Krista and I saw a, a infographic a little while ago that rated act, various activities on a scale from one to nine, where one is the least, most safe, and nine is the most dangerous COVID related activities you could participate in. And, and attending worship was an eight out of nine. It was the second most dangerous activity that people could engage in. And, uh, and so I'm thankful for our church's caution, just personally, and our family is thankful for our church's caution in prioritizing safety in, in this season. Um, but I think secondarily, our church's commitment to inclusivity so our reluctance to engage in any activity that would exclude people who lack privilege um, and the way that that's affected how we think about Sunday morning is something I deeply appreciate that that to make Sunday morning an experience that you can only engage in if you are privileged enough to not be immunocompromised. You're privileged enough to be within a certain age bracket. You're privileged enough to have a certain skin tone because the pandemic affects uh, black, indigenous, and people of color much more severely than it affects white people. Um, to, to know that those realities exist and for us to be very careful to not want to engage in activities that exclude people who lack privilege um, I'm thankful for that value. And I think there's a, for us, how we've talked about it, the, the value of the public witness for the church to not be seen as fighting for its rights, for the church to not be seen as fighting to be an exception to the rule, but for the church to be seen as cooperating with what we understand to be the best practices in our society to keep everybody safe. That to me, radiates the spirit of Jesus doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. And, uh, and so I'm thankful for the caution, the pumping the brakes that we've been doing at a leadership level when it comes to reopening. And, and uh, I'm eager to see us reopen when we can do it in a way that doesn't violate those values. Yeah, yeah. And to coming back to your one of your earlier points, this has been one of those places where it's been really delightful to see the unity of our community. Yes. And the, the galvanizing around this, appreciating that, hey, the, the capacity to make the decision to reopen is one of privilege. Yes. And we're following a Jesus who was all about voluntarily relinquishing his privilege in order to serve those of less privilege. And we want to be that kind of community combined with 
a, a, a far lower grade stress and anxiety about needing to gather because the church for us is so much more than the event and the gathering. Absolutely. It's a way of life. It's, you know, loving God and expressing that and love for others. And the way that people have tracked with those kind of values so galvanizingly has been, uh, for me, certainly uh, really encouraging. And, and uh, yeah, I would track with your, your thinking. Uh, it kind of echoes all of our collective leadership thinking on the, on the reopening conversation right now. Well, hey, we're at it. Oh, I was just going to say really quickly, the one thing I would tag onto that, and I'm a little bit biased because I'm part of the inspiration team who puts on our Sunday morning services. But the other thing that reduces stress when it comes to reopening is that I think uh, my teammates are doing an incredible job at providing Sunday experiences that actually do, that are meeting people where they're at and walking with them through this moment. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Outside of the being able to be together and all of those intangible yeah. values, the, the actual content of, of what is being delivered by our inspiration department is second to none when we're comparing, you know, what what the experience would be like live. So yeah, absolutely, we've got that that ace in the hole as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Hey, um, we got to wrap this up. Any final encouragements or challenges to our people as uh, we get our kind of six month checkup with the teaching pastor? <laughs> I maybe I'm just affected by Galatians overtly. But one of the things I've thought the most about during this pandemic over and over is just this urge to encourage people to be gracious with themselves and to be gracious with each other. Early on, I saw a meme that was going around where somebody posts online. They said, listen, pay attention to the people who don't call you during this pandemic to check up on you because those people were never really your friends and you should probably get rid of them in your life. And internally, my reaction was no, like, be generous with each other. This, is, this isn't a once-in-a-generation or a once-in-a-lifetime event. Like This is a once-in-a-century event and where we're doing our very best to navigate through a calamity that, that most of us, the likes of which we've never experienced before. None of us know what we're doing. Everybody's doing their best to get through it, to get through it with hope and joy and courage and... Uh, and I think if we can be generous with each other as we figure out the future together, we can get through it together. Um, kind of in a, you know, thinking about the end of the book of Philippians, Paul is in a crisis himself, and yet he ends the book by saying, I know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the Christ that we experience in a tangible way, outside of experiencing Christ by his Holy Spirit, the way we experience Christ in a tangible way is in each other's lives as the body of Christ and so let's love each other and be gracious with each other and continue uh, to get through this together. Thanks again for checking in. We'll see you in six months. I can't wait. <laughs> Hanging in there in the meantime. And uh, thanks to all of you uh, for continuing to track with us. Uh, next week, we're going to launch into kind of an It Takes a Village version uh, for the month of July uh, as we continue finding our way together. So we're excited to launch into that. We'll see you then. Take care, everybody.